right. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for this time in your word now. God, we want to open up these words of life, these words of truth. And God, we are, we are at your mercy. We're at your mercy, God. Unless you open our eyes, God, we just see just words. But God, open our eyes, please. Help us to see the glory of your name, who you are, God, what you've called us to. God, do with us what you want to do with us through your word this morning. We need you, Lord. We need your help, God. Lord, I pray that you help me to preach your word and the ability that you supply. God, I pray that you help your people to hear your word and the ability that you supply. Lord, come and be with us. Come. Show us what you want us to see today, please. And praise you, God, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Colossians chapter 2. So most of you know this, but we're coming through this letter to the Colossian church together. We've been doing this for several weeks now. Took a very short break, and now we're back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5. So let's read it together. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. <clears throat> For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I'm going to talk to you right from the front in here about the main goad that should land on the Colossian church as they would have read those words. Now, do you know what I mean by goad? You look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, it says the words of the wise are like goads, which is like a cattle prod. God's word is meant to poke us and prod us and move us in a certain direction. So what is the, what is the prodding that was supposed to happen with a Colossian church when they read these words? And in, in light of all the context around this, and, and verse 4 being the first time in this letter that we explicitly hear about the false teachers that have come in with their plausible arguments at, 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 in Colossus, in the church of Colossus. It's the first time we've heard this. In light of those things, here's the main go that, would, that the Colossian church should walk away with when they would have came to this part of the letter. And this is it. It's Paul saying something like this. Listen, I'm thankful Colossian church. For your faithfulness. For your standing firm. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. But be on alert. Because you are under attack. Be awake. Wake up. Be alert. Because plausible arguments have come your way to lead you astray. Now why would a Christian need a warning like that? Why would a Christian need a warning like that? Because our enemy is very deceitful. You agree with that? Our enemy deceives us. Deception. You don't realize that it's happening. And also we have a tendency in ourselves to live sleepy, unguarded Christian lives. So he's saying to them, listen, I'm saying these things so that no one might delude you with plausible arguments. I'm thankful that you're in good order and that you're walking faithfully with God. But listen to me. Wake up. Be on alert. Be on alert. You're under attack. I believe that's the main go that's supposed to land on the Colossian church as they would have read these words. Now let's just walk through, walk through this, uh, this passage of Scripture. I want you to think about a few things. So here's some things that we see out of Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. First, we see the reason. We see the reason that this letter is written to the Colossian church. It says it right here. I say this in order that. He says, all the things I've been saying, I'm saying this in order that I don't want you to be deluded. I don't want you to be deceived by these plausible arguments. Therefore, I say this. 
Well, what is this? I say this in order that. What is the this here? The this is it points back to what Paul has been saying, especially in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, and really the whole rest of the letter. He's saying this. I'm saying all the things that I've been saying up to this point so that no one may delude you by these, these plausible arguments. So verse 4 gives us the reason that Paul is saying the things he's saying in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 that we looked at last time we were in Colossians. And he's given the reason that he's been saying everything he's been saying up to this point in Colossians chapter 1. So what has been Paul, what has Paul been saying up until this point that's motivated by, I don't want you to be deluded. I don't want you to be led astray. What has he been saying? And let me, for simplicity's sake, let me just put it in two categories. Number one, he's been expressing his burden for them. He has a burden for the Colossian church and he's been expressing that to them. Number two, he's been preaching to them about the all-sufficiency of Jesus. It's all over Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. The all-sufficiency of Jesus. So first, let's take this great burden that Paul has for this church. Paul has a great burden for this church. You see it in chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. How great a struggle that I have for you. He wants them to know. I want you to know how I feel towards you. We talked about that word struggle. It's the same word in the Greek that we get the English word agony from or agonize. I'm agonizing over you. I have a burden for you. I have a holy anxiety for you. When I think about you, Colossian church, I have this spiritual conflict within me. And so he's been expressing that to them. Paul's writing to his fellow soldiers in Christ, the Colossian church, who were under attack. And he tells them of his deep burden and his deep concern to awaken them to a holy awareness. Wake up, listen. It's what he says to him as he explains this burden. Paul says, I'm telling you about my burden in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Second, we got the all-sufficiency of Christ. We see this all over. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. The verse that comes right before what we read in verse 4. Verse 3. In whom? He's talking about Christ. He's been saying, I want you to grow in the knowledge of Christ. And in, in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the all-sufficiency of Jesus. He's sufficient in every way. He all wisdom and knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom, wisdom and knowledge found where? Found in Christ. Back up a little bit. I want you to see this. Go to chapter one. Let's read again verse 15 through 20 together. And I want you to highlight this word all, all, all coming through this passage of scripture. Listen, speaking about Jesus, the beloved son who delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. Listen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by all things, by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything He may, might be preeminent. That's Jesus' supremacy in everything. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. All that will be reconciled to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth, made reconciled to God through His bloody cross where He dies for sinners like me and you. He is the all-sufficient Savior. And Paul's been talking about it through this letter. What about your maturity? How do you find maturity in Christ? Chapter 1, verse 28. He says... Him we proclaim. Speaking about Jesus, we proclaim Jesus. Warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature 
in Christ. And we're talking about the all-sufficiency of Jesus to save lost sinners. sinners. The all-sufficiency of Jesus to make us conform into the image of Christ. He is the all-sufficient one. So, so Paul, we read through this letter. Chapter 1, 15 through 20, 1 verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 3, all wisdom and knowledge from him. Paul, why are you going on and on and on about the all-sufficiency of Jesus? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that, Paul? I say these things in order that no one may delude you through plausible arguments. I'm saying these things to wake you up and to put you on alarm. The deceivers at Colossus, they were coming, once you think about this, the, the deceivers at Colossus, they were coming from various angles to deceive. But they had one common, one common thread in their deceptions that runs all the way through. I'm telling you, these deceivers, these false teachers, they came from all these different angles, but there was one common thread, one common objective that they had, and it is to attack the all-sufficiency of Jesus. We need to remember and learn from that. They're coming from all these angles, but they are there to attack the all-sufficiency of Jesus. As we continue on in chapter 2, in the coming weeks, we're going to see that. That in verse 8, in verse 16, in verse 18, we get a little taste of these false teachings. And each one, the common denominator, is you're going after philosophy, but it's not according to Christ. You're going after this legalism, but it's not according to Christ. You're going after this charismatic stuff, but it's not according to Christ. You're not holding fast to the head who is Jesus. We're going to see that those specifics come in the following weeks. I want you to think about this. Let's talk in a more general sense. The, the false teachers at Colossus, they could be described like this. Christ plus teachers. They were Christ plus teachers. So yeah, you know, Jesus is important. We agree with you on that. That Jesus is very, very important. But, and they insinuate through, the, what, through their actions and through their teaching that He is insufficient. They are Christ plus teachers. They're not going to tell you Jesus is not important. But they will live and speak in a way to say that He is not sufficient. And that is the culture that you live in, by the way. I don't see a whole lot in the culture that you live in of this attack and just throw Jesus out the window altogether. What you have is this half-hearted, yes, Jesus is important, yes, Jesus is good, but does that enter into my life? Yes, Jesus is important, yes, He's good, but if you really want to be spiritual, you need this. Christ plus teaching. Paul's writing to fellow Christians whose Christ is is being belittled as insufficient. And so he puts before their eyes in this letter to the Colossians the glorious all-sufficiency of our Savior Jesus Christ to fortify them against the smooth-talking attackers that come against them. I want to talk a little bit further about the all-sufficiency of Jesus, okay? I want us at Grace Community Church, I want this church to have deep, deep roots in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ so that we will be fortified against the attacks of the enemy. I want you to think about it like this. When Christ plus teachings, when Christ plus ideas are whispered into your ear, I want you to have deep, deep convictions that Christ plus nothing is everything. I want you to know that when you have Christ, you've got everything. That when you, when you have Christ, you lack absolutely nothing. I want you to have deep-seated convictions about this. That you are complete in Him as Colossians teaches us. God bankrupted heaven when He sent Christ to us. What else could you ask for? What else could you, what, what more could you want? Our desires for other things are real, but they're unnecessary. We got Christ, we got it all. The all sufficiency of Jesus. So I want you to think about it. Christ is sufficient. He's all you need for salvation. He's all you need for sanctification. He's all you need for life. So your salvation from hell is not Christ plus your best effort. That's not your salvation from hell. It's not Christ plus 
your best effort. Your salvation is in Christ alone. The one who tasted death for us all. The one who laid down his life at the cross. The one who's risen from the grave. The Savior of mankind. And him alone is your salvation. All you need, not just for salvation, but for sanctification, is found in Christ. All you need for sanctification is found in Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, God by His divine power has given, given us everything we need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Everything you need for life and godliness, everything you need to live a godly life, found, in, found where? In the knowledge of Christ Jesus, the Savior, our Lord. It's all found in Christ. The reason we don't, this is the reason we don't give 12-step programs and self-help books and, to help you grow in your faith. Christ is all. Christ is everything. The reason we point you to the Bible for your Christian growth is for what, is for what reason? Because in the Bible are found the all-sufficient words of the all-sufficient Christ who died for sinners and who sanctifies us and cleanses us through the washing of water of His Word. It's found in Christ. All you need, not just for salvation, not just for, for, for sanctification, but all you need for happiness. All you need for happiness is found in Christ. The whole world could cave in on you. It could all collapse in on you. And yet if you have Christ, you have the ultimate source of all joy. Listen to this verse in Habakkuk. Chapter 3. Listen to this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, that's bad news. Not fruit, not, nor fruit beyond the vines, that's bad news. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Bad news, bad news, bad news. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. All bad news, yet what? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He's the source of all joy. All sufficient Savior for all joy. And we could go on and on and on about His all sufficiency. But I would just commend you to the lifelong study of the all supremacy and all sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the Savior. But let me, let me just summarize it in one verse. It's in Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 says it like this. Christ is all. Christ is all. I want you to imagine the Christian life. Imagine like a, a long, dangerous trek to a holy city called heaven. Much like Pilgrim's Progress, right? With John Bunyan. This long, dangerous trek to this heavenly city is where we're headed. Imagine the Christian life like that. And only Christ got you on this pilgrimage. Only He got you on this trek. Only He got you on this path and saved you from the land of destruction. Only He did that. And He hands you a book that tells you about the all-sufficient Savior that can make sure that you make it to the end, into that heavenly city. And along the way, people step on your path. And they say, Hey, listen. I know a better way. I know a better way. Hey, listen. I know a faster way to get you to that heavenly city. Listen to me. I know a more enjoyable way. I know an easier way to get you there. Don't take it. Don't take the bait. And Paul says it like this. I say this, Colossian church, as you're headed on this journey, on this pilgrimage to that heavenly city, I'm saying this to you, Colossian church, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Go to that second heading. The state of the Colossian church. Here's something that we see in this passage of Scripture. We see the state of the Colossian church. Look right there at the end of verse 5. Your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So in verse 5 it says, Though I'm absent in the body, 
I'm present with you in spirit, rejoicing to see. And what is the Colossian church like? What are they like? I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You have two descriptions of the Colossian church here. One is good order. This means they're well-ordered behavior. This is, a, this is an obedient church doing what Christ has told them to do. Functioning in the order prescribed by Jesus. An obedient church of good order. Second description, the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is, Paul says, I'm looking at the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. I'm looking at the stability of your faith in Christ. Your immovable faith in Christ. Your faith in Christ is rock solid, immovable. It stands. This is the idea this here, the firmness of your faith in Christ. They were not they were not like a tiny little tree tossed by the wind and uprooted. They were like mighty oaks established in the faith. Established in the faith. Two lessons that we can learn from this state of the Colossian church. One is this. Solid churches, healthy, solid churches must keep their guard up. Solid churches must not let their guard down. Paul's writing to a healthy church marked by obedience, marked by steadfast faith, and he's writing to them that no one might be deluded, deceived by plausible arguments. What we learn in that is that established Christians and established churches must beware. Open up your eyes. Be alert. Beware of that pride that leads you into a sleepy and unguarded Christian life. It's pride. There were a group of disciples one time that looked at Jesus and said, We'll never forsake you. We'll never deny you. We'll never deny you. We'll never deny you. And when it was time to pray, they're asleep. They deny their Savior. This is telling us the lesson that we can learn here is not to put our guard down. In other words, don't be lured to sleep by the enemy. The enemy hates you. The enemy hates us. Satan hates us, wants us to be destroyed. Kill, steal, and destroy. So don't let your guard down. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be watchful, sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Let him who thinks he stands, is that you? Take heed, lest he fall. We must beware of the pride that causes us to live sleepy and unguarded Christian lives as if we're okay and everything's fine. Second thing I think we learned from the state of the Colossian church is that Christian, is the Christian life is a war. It's an all-out, absolute war. Both, and here's where I'm getting that from. Both of the terms that are used here, order and firmness. I'm looking at your good order, Colossian church, and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Both of those terms are military terms. They're soldier terms. Both of those terms in the Greek language. So the, the, word, the word order there for good order, it's like a soldier's rank. It's like a single file line of soldiers. Imagine that. And the word firmness here, it's like a solid front of soldiers, immovable under fire. Fire is raining down on them and yet they don't move, they don't budge. The firmness, their good order and their firmness. Now this is not just here, but throughout the New Testament we see Christians being described in military terms, in soldier terms, right? In Philemon 2, we see Paul call one of his brothers in Christ, my fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, we hear, that, we hear these words. You must endure hardship as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, with these civilian pursuits. Because he wants to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Christians are called soldiers Throughout the New Testament. So that's what we see in this passage. I want you to do this real quick. In First, in first Chronicles chapter 11. I want you to use one of David's mighty men. As an example to you. 
Think about David, one of David's mighty men. If Christians are compared to soldiers, then let David's mighty men serve as an example to you. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 12. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer. I want to present to you Eliezer. Was this mighty man Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the, the Ohohite? He was with David at Pastamim. When the Philistines were gathered there for battle. So here's the Philistines gathered for battle. And you got Eliezer. He's standing there. There was a plot of ground full of barley. And the men fled from the Philistines. You imagine all the men around, around him. Fleeing. Scared to death. Afraid. Running for the, from the Philistines. Who have come to make war. Verse 14. But he took his stand. Steadfast. Firm. Immovable. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and def defended it and killed the Philistines and the Lord saved them by a great victory. And here's this picture in the Colossian church of soldiers immovable under fire. Immovable. Protect the plot of land like Eliezer there. Paul views the Colossian church as an army. Soldiers down in the trenches going on attacks Together, fighting the general Christ battles for the glory of Jesus' name. This is the way he views the Colossian church in these words here. But here's what he knows. They're enemy snipers. They're enemy troops on the ground. They're enemy cannons that are going to be coming at them. So as a good leader, he warns them. He warns them of these things. Listen, I know you're standing strong. You're a solid front of soldiers. But listen to me. They want to delude you. Attacks are coming. Beware. Be on alert. Open up your eyes. Don't underestimate your enemy. He knew that the Colossian church was solid, but not invincible. So what we see there is a Christian life is a war. It means we must fight. Must fight. I want us to look at these attacks, okay? So the attacks in the Colossian church. Look at these words in verse 4. That no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So what are these what are these plausible arguments that we're talking about here? Plausible means persuasive. These persuasive arguments, in other words, they're they're their reasoning seems legit on the surface. Seems to be. One translation said it like this. They're well-crafted arguments. They're plausible arguments. They're well-crafted arguments. I believe the NIV says they're fine-sounding arguments. They're fine-sounding arguments. What we're talking about is clever and impressive speech that has the appearance of wisdom. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23 of Colossians. These things that have an appearance of wisdom, they appear wise. They seem so wise. The proverb says there's a way that seems right to a man. Thinking about plausible arguments, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. Do you realize that? It seems right. It's not... I know, I will always know when something is, is coming against me, when an attack is being made. No, sometimes attacks are made and it seems right, plausible, persuasive, and yet it can lead to death. Now, as I said earlier, specific plausible arguments are going to be mentioned as we continue on in Colossians 2. Things about worldly wisdom. Things about legalism, things about charismania, all that kind of stuff is going to be there. But what I want us to focus on is that the best attacks, the best attacks of the enemy against you are those that seem so plausible. Those that seem so reasonable. Which is the reason you need the Word of God, right? You need God's Word. And it's the reason why we need each other. Watching out for each other's soul. Going after it in the Word of God. We need this because the enemy's best attacks seem so persuasive. Let me give you a, another scripture here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. 
Satan betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He said, I brought you to Christ. But I feel this jealousy for you. Why? Verse 3. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Satan has cunning craftiness. Deceptions. And just like he deceived Eve, it's a deception. Just like he did that, he says, So your thoughts. This goes down in your thought life. So your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, listen, I'm talking about these closed bargains. I'm talking about these deceptions that lead you away from a pure and holy devotion to Jesus. Don't let the deceiver do this to you. Romans chapter 16, I want to give you another one. Romans 16 verse 8. 16 verse 18, excuse me. Listen to Romans 16, 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Or, or do you have it on your radar to watch out for these deceptions? That there's a way that can seem so right to you, masked by smooth talk. You feel awake, you feel aware of these sort of things. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that the American church is in such danger is that we've set it up this way. By the, by the low and unbiblical standards we make on, on, on leaders, right? All you have to do to be a leader in the local church is to do what? You just be a smooth-talking pulpiteer. And because of that, we're set up for danger. We prime the pump for a plunge into deception. We're in danger of that. Smooth talk, deceptions, plausible arguments, things that just seem right. Now what's the aim? That no one may delude you through plausible arguments. What's the aim of these plausible arguments? What's the aim of them? And it's to delude you. That no one may delude. No one may delude you. So His aim is to deceive you, to delude you, to, to water you down. He wants to water you down. I thought about this this week. Satan, I don't think, is so much interested with you in here today. He's not so much interested with changing who your Savior is, but rather watering down the one that you have. He wants to delude you. He wants to water you down until suddenly He's no Savior at all. If you don't, little by little... Day after day, increase in your knowledge of the real Jesus Christ. You better bet that little by little and day after day, there, there are thoughts of a false Christ being formulated by Satan in your mind. Little by little, day after day, deluded. The Greek word here for deluded, the only other place it's used in the New Testament is James 1.22, where he says, be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving or deluding yourself. The most deluded people on the planet are good sermon listeners who don't do the word. Deluded. Deception is what we have in mind here. So I want you to think about this. Paul's writing to this church, the church at Colossae, this, this, this obedient army of, of steadfast soldiers standing immovable under fire. And he says to them, I'm writing these things in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So stay awake. Stay alert. Don't let your guard down. Fight for your own soul. Look around. Fight for your brother's and sister's soul around you. Be on the alert. A quick insight here into Satan's tactics that I think we can get from what, where we're at in the Scripture in Colossians. So this is just insight into his battle plan. Satan's battle plan. And here it is. His main focus is to move you away from Jesus. Do you know that? Lots of things he can lie to you about. Lots of stuff he can do to you. All kind of stuff he can, he can deceive about, but his main focus is to move you from Jesus. In a sense, in a very bad sense, Satan is Christ focused. Satan is Christ centered in a very twisted fashion. 
Because His main focus is to move you from Christ. And I would say this, even if it's a slight move, right? Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is there and He's being tempted and Satan takes Jesus up on, on this high mountain. He shows Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And He says, Jesus, if you bow down to Me, I'll make you king of all of it. Satan's fine with Jesus playing second fiddle. He's fine with Jesus. He, a, a second place Jesus is a victory for Satan. He can roll everything else and yet be lower. Just second place. And it's a victory for Satan. So we, and so we see this idea that, that the main focus of Satan is to move you from Jesus. So that you might not see Jesus' beauty. That your affections might not be stirred up for Jesus. That you might not obey Jesus. Like his main focus is to pull you from Him. And we know that as we keep going in Colossians, right? Each one of those deceptions coming in the common denominator is to pull you from Christ. Pull you from Christ. And so why is it important or why is it helpful that we know that Satan's main goal is to move us away from Jesus? Why is that helpful to us? Because it shows you how to fight, right? It teaches you how to fight. You need to fight to see Christ in the Word of God. You, you, have to, you have to fight to know Him intimately. Love Christ deeply. Put away everything that steals away your affections from Him. Obey Christ and kill every sin that blurs your vision of Him. It shows you how to fight. Knowing the ultimate goal of the enemy and therefore the ultimate aim of these plausible arguments in Colossians 2.4, that's what moved Paul to spend so much time in Colossians on the all-sufficiency of King Jesus and the supremacy of Christ. That's why he spent so much time there. Listen to a quote from Warren Wiersbe. If your spiritual roots are deep in Christ, you will not want any other soil. Listen to John Calvin. John Calvin said this about Paul's descriptions of Jesus in Colossians 1 and 2. He said this about Paul's descriptions of Jesus. Listen to what he said. A full description of Christ, the only remedy for fortifying the Colossians against all the snares by which the false apostles endeavored to entrap them. For how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines? But because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us. For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. The knowledge of Christ. The knowledge of Christ. This is the key that can close the door against all the base errors and the impostors. So the knowledge of Christ. So we've seen the state of the Colossian church. We've seen the attacks on the church, okay? But now I want us to look at this. I want, you, I want us to look at Paul's burden and his love for this Colossian church. Paul's burden and his love. And we see it in this phrase, listen. Verse 5, For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see. For though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see. So he says here he is absent in body. Means I, I can't. What he's saying here, I can't be with you bodily. Why can't he be with him bodily? Because he's writing this from a prison cell. He's in prison somewhere, and I can't be with you bodily. Think about this. I want you to think about Paul like a soldier that's being kept at bay, and he knows that his fellow soldiers are under fire. Oh, how he longs to be with them, but he can't. He's in prison. He can't go and be with his brothers in this moment. I thought about Uriah in 2 Samuel 11. Remember Uriah there? He's been brought back from, from the, the very front lines of battle. He's been brought back home. And he's home there. And the king speaks to him, King David. And he sends him home to enjoy the pleasures of going home. But he doesn't go home. He says, why don't you go home, Uriah? He said, how can I go home when my fellow soldiers are out there sleeping in tents and making war on the enemy? And I see Paul like that. I see him like this man in jail that knows that his fellow soldiers are under fire and he longs to be with them. I'm absent in body, 
I'm absent in body, but He says, but I'm with you in spirit. What does it mean? What does it mean that Paul says, I'm with you in spirit? It means my body can't be with you, but my heart is with you. It means I can't see you face to face, but my heart bleeds for you. You hear the love in that. You hear the burden that's there. I'm absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit rejoicing. You hear the love. You hear the burden in Paul for these people. We know that emotions are involved in what Paul's talking about. Because he says, I'm with you in spirit. What do you mean? Rejoicing to see. Rejoicing. It's, I feel what you feel. I feel what you feel. I, I weep when you weep. I rejoice when you rejoice. You have emotions. My emotions and my affections are, are wrapped in what you feel. I'm with you in spirit. Is what he's saying here. He's like a loving father. Who knows that his beloved son is off at war. And he's in the heat of battle. He says I'm absent in body son. But I'm with you in spirit. I'm with you. Don't you love this picture about Paul? Don't you love this, this man who loved the church? And specifically the Colossian church. He loved them. He was burdened for them. He rejoiced with them. He says, my spirit is with you. Don't you love this about Paul? I want you to connect this. If you take chapter 2 verse 1 and you connect it with verse Think about this. Chapter 2, verse 1. What we see there is, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Remember, he said, Colossian church, I feel a burden for you. I feel a spiritual anxiety, a holy, a holy agony for you. And then he says, rejoicing to see your good order. Rejoicing to see the firmness of your faith. In verse 5, when you take these two together, you see Paul as a man who loves the body of Christ so much. You see Paul as a man that loves the Colossian church so much that he weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn. He rejoices when they rejoice. He saw a spiritual danger for them and he mourned with them. He mourned alongside them. He saw spiritual faithfulness in them and he rejoiced with them. He was wrapped up in these people. I'm with you in spirit. He says from a prison cell. And I think what you have here is the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus who weeps with his church. The heart of Jesus who rejoices over us with singing. And the heart of Jesus planted on the Apostle Paul and growing in the Apostle Paul. Don't you love this about him? Don't you love this about this man? I want to close by saying just some things by way of application to all of us, okay? Think about it like this. What is the main goad of this passage for Grace Community Church? What's the main prod here for Grace Community Church? We talked about the main goad for the Colossian church was what? I'm thankful you're standing firm, but be on alert because you're under attack. And so what is the goad for us? And it's the same. Grace Community Church, be on alert. Grace Community Church, wake up. You're under attack. Don't go sleepy. Don't go unguarded in your Christian living. Wake up. You're at war. Now with Paul... What would Paul have to say about Grace Community Church? Would he say good order and your firmness of your faith in Christ? And I thought about that this week. And here's one way that I think is helpful to think about it. You got the Galatian church who has fallen head over heels into false doctrine, heresy, nothing but rebukes are in place. And the Galatian church, they've fallen into heresy. And then you got the Colossian church who's on the verge of battle. They're in danger, but man, they're standing firm in the midst of it. And I would say if I'm thinking about the way Paul, or more importantly Christ, would think about Grace Community Church, I would say we're not on the side of the Galatian church, head over heels in heresy. Although we're not beyond that. 
We should wake up. I see us closer to this place of Grace Community Church, your good order and, and, and your firm, the firmness of your faith in Christ. But regardless of where we're at, we must be alert. We have to live lives, Christian lives that are awake to these things, awake to the tactics and the schemes of the enemy that's around us. I say these things lest you be deluded with plausible arguments. So be on alert. So brothers and sisters at Grace Community Church, listen to me. By way of application, be on alert. And I want this to land on you in two ways. One's very personal and the other's corporate. So be alert. Be alert and let that land on you very, very personal. As a personal charge to you. Are you awake today? Are you living your Christian life as one who understands that deceptions abound and they're all around you and you must be on guard? Are you living your life in that way? What are you doing with God's Word? What are you doing with the Word of God? We are called to devour God's Word. And to neglect God's Word is to say, Listen, Paul, I don't believe what you have to say about all these deceptions. I'm fine. But the reality is, is you need God's Word infiltrating your every thought every single day. You need that. What are you going to do about it in this new year? you got a new year coming up. What are you going to do with God's Word to show that I'm on the alert? I realize deceptions are there and things are there that can seem so right to me and yet lead me to death. So I'm going to devour the Word of God and fill my mind and heart with it. Are you on alert? What about prayer and fasting? What about prayer and fasting? To neglect prayer and fasting is to say, God, God, I'm doing just fine. Just relax, God. I got it. I can fight the enemies. I got it under control. What about prayer and fasting? Will you set up and formulate your life over this new year that you're going to be a person that lives on the alert, diving in, digging into God's Word, seeking the living God in prayer and fasting? Will you be on alert? And what about Christ? How's your heart for Christ? Draw near to Jesus the Christ. Our enemy's aim is to make you so busy that you don't grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. His aim is to steal away your affections after lesser things that do not matter so your affections aren't abounding for Him, Savior. What will you do with the Word and prayer and fasting in Christ to be on alert? That's an application personally. But as we talk about the main goat here being Colossian Church, be on the alert. I'm saying these things lest anyone delude you. Listen, wake up. In that sense, I want to talk to you about being alert in a corporate sense. Take it as a corporate, a church-wide charge to us. I think Paul models for us right here the heart that, that, that we ought to feel in love and in burden for the church of Jesus Christ, and specifically for your church that you're a part of. I think Paul models for us when it says how great a struggle, the agony, the inner conflict for the church. That's a model for us. But when it says, when it says right here, I'm with you in spirit rejoicing. That's a model for us. The way Paul is, is a model for us of how we ought to feel in our hearts towards our church. This holy burden, this intense love. Do, do you have that? Do you love and value your church in that way? I was, I was thinking about Colossians 2 1 this week. That verse, when it says a struggle, I want you to know how great a struggle or conflict or fight. I want you to know about the inner fight I have. I was, I was thinking about just this idea that you, you can tell what people value, what they love, what they value by what they're willing to fight for, by where their inner conflict is. Imagine someone with a gun to your back. And they say, give me all your money. And you value your life over money, so you, you give it to them. They say, give me all your possessions. You value your life over your possessions, so you give them your possessions. They say, give me your children. And you say, over my dead body, and you go to war. Why? 
Because you value it. You're willing to go through fight and conflict. And in the same way as what we're called into. To imitate Paul in this. That we think about our church. That we are on alert. Not just for ourselves. But for each other. It's not just about you. Look around. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ. And be on alert for them. Paul is absent in body. But present in spirit. And I'm concerned that too many in the church today are present in body, but absent in spirit. So I want to call us into that. So, Grace Community Church, be on alert. Be on alert. I say these things so that nobody might delude you in plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see you your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, please help us with this. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord Jesus. You are the all-sufficient Savior. Lord, You have done everything. We need nothing else, God. And, and there's nothing that we have to give in regards to salvation or our sanctification or anything else, God. You are all. You are all in all. You are the all-sufficient Savior. And I pray, God, that You would use these words that we've just read together and meditated over together. Use these words to wake us up to an, a holy awareness. God, use these words to wake us up to a fight, to a battle, to a conflict. God, I pray that You would pull us away from sleepy living. Pour over us, God, a zeal that makes sense in light of the warfare that we're in the midst of. And God, I pray that you would protect us, Lord. Help us to go day in and day out and grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Lord Jesus, our Savior. God, grow us in the knowledge of you. Help us to know you more and more and more that we might have those deep roots in you, Lord Jesus Christ. So that our hearts will never want to go anywhere else. Protect us from that enemy that hates you, Lord, and hates us. Protect us, God. Reign over His schemes in this church. Lord, You, you said that You rule over all principalities and powers. And I pray, God, you would, you would make that known in this church. That You rule over all. That Satan has no dominion here. Thank You, Lord, for Your help. In Jesus' name, Amen.